everyone, and welcome to episode 163 of the Savvy Girls Podcast. This is Melanie, and I am podcasting from basically everywhere. For this episode, I was in England, I was in Turkey, I was in Paris, although I don't think I podcasted at all from Paris. I was on the airplane, I was everywhere, and in all of these places, I met lovely knitters, we had some lovely chats, and I recorded them. So... It might be a little bit confusing. I let's see. Okay, the people I talked to include one of Deborah's colleagues. We talked to at a restaurant, a woman from Germany who knits socks in Turkey, a bunch of knitters from Havent, a bunch of knitters from Portsmouth. Who else? Oh, a knitter I met on the plane on the way home, and probably a few more. So, if it's a bit confusing, I apologize. I am happy to answer any questions about these interviews if you would like. But meanwhile, sit back and use your knitting stick to pull down the blinds because I am exhausted. It has been a long trip. I'm so tired. But I have a podcast for you. So enjoy. And I said, hey, 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 it's just an ordinary day. And it's all your state of mind. At the end of the day, you just got to say it's all right. Hey everybody, I am so sorry that I have not kept up with the stories on this trip. The last podcast was all interviews, and this podcast is probably going to be the same thing. Because why talk if someone else can say it better? But I mean, for the record, usually I say it better, and that's why you should listen to this podcast. I'm just saying. But for this episode, I've been traveling around England. I've met a lot of knitters. Here are some of those knitters. I love some of these stories. Oh, I don't even know everyone's name again, but let's see. Uh, these stories come from, I think I put all of them from Beverly on the last podcast, but there were quite a few from Portsmouth. Do I have one from London? I don't even remember. I'm in Turkey. I'm really tired and my face is falling off. So yay, face plague and yay, interviews. So here we go, I guess. And I guess if I don't have enough interviews to fill up the podcast. I'll talk more later. And I promise it is actually really going to be a fun episode. Farewell and adieu to you Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to you ladies of Spain. For we received orders but to sail for old England. But be hoping a short time to see you again. The first three interviews you're going to hear are from Knitters in Portsmouth, UK. And I have a very grumpy sparrow helping me out. What is it, Colette? Nothing? She's overtired. She's in her cage. She's screaming. Anyway, the first three interviews are from... I can't, Mom. I can't do it. All right. The first three interviews... (laughs) The first three interviews are from Knitters in Portsmouth, UK. The first is a woman, Liz, who works at the theater there. She had some fascinating stories to tell about the theater where I sang, so we are going to talk to her first. The second interview is with the mother of Bernie, the lovely woman who I stayed with and who hired me to sing in Portsmouth. And the third interview... And the... And the third interview is with someone we actually heard from a couple of years ago on the podcast. This is a woman I met on an airplane. You might remember she was part of a roller coaster club. Well, guess what? I met her again. We'll rant and we'll roar like true British sailors. We'll rant and we'll roar all on the salt seas until we strike soundings in the channel of old England. Call you Chantasilly, So here I am with Liz. And where are we, Liz? We're sitting up here in the upper circle of the New Theatre Royal in Portsmouth. 
And you were telling me this is a theater is a it's a special theater. It was made by a very specific architect. Yes, the ar- the architect is a guy called Natchum, and he designed theaters in England. He was probably the greatest theater architect this country's ever seen. He designed loads of theaters. I think there are probably I don't know how many are left now that are working, but at least fifty. But he designed such famous theaters as the London Palladium, which is the most probably the most famous variety theater in the world. And he operated in the late eighteen hundreds right through into the night into the 1900s. He died in 1920. He died in 1920, yeah. So despite the modern music, it's a very old-fashioned building. It, it and is it indeed. has a couple really wonderful design elements. And that's why I just that's why I hauled you here and stuck this in your face. Yes. To ask if you would tell a couple of these stories. Yes, well this theatre was opened in nineteen hundred and is the most wonderful example not only of wonderful design and engineering, but of sort of uh, inventiveness of the Victorians in terms of uh, modern, very modern facilities that they had in nineteen hundred. One of the facilities they have is an air conditioning system. In the in, 1900s? In, this theatre was opened in 1900 and has, and has got a state-of-the-art air conditioning system of the time. What used to happen was if they had two shows in a day, say a matinee and an evening show, because, all the, because the audience smoked, the air would be thick with cigarette smoke, cigar smoke, pipe smoke, be very, very fuggy, and, of course, people smelt. So it would be, I think, it's, I think the word is fetid, Describe, yes. describe it very, very unpleasant. So they used to change the fetid. air. That's a fetid. great word. People it's a great word. use that word. We're, yes. we're going to bring it back. Everybody yes, fetid. Use the word fetid. F E T I D. Fetid. I think it's F O E T I D. I think it's, it's funny spelling anyway. I think, I think in, in, in the UK it's F O E, yes. and in Canada it's F. It, yes. It's pronounced fetid, I think. And it's yes. fetid. Yeah. Fetid. It's, it's a, it's a, yes, it's a, it's a very special word, and it means a very particular thing, and it, and it describes exactly what, this, what the atmosphere of this theatre has been like. So they used to change the air in between shows. And what in the ceiling of the theatre, there is this metal funnel with... Um, it's decorated, of course, because it's Victorian. Everything's decorated, which goes up into the roof space of the theatre. And above the, the metal funnel, there is a wood-burning stove... In the, in the roof space. Wow. It's, it's the obvious thing to put into a, into a roof, isn't it, a wood-burning stove? Of course, a wooden roof, wood-burning stove. <laughs> of no, course. Why not? When the show was finished, they would close all the external doors of the theatre, and a small boy, and it's always a small boy, would climb up the ladder, up into the roof space, then go along the crawl boards to the stove, and he would light the stove. And, of course, what would happen then is that the stove would gradually use up the oxygen in the theatre, in the auditorium. He'd, he'd feed the stove with wood, keep it going as long as he needed to. And the end of... I mean, it didn't take very long, maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes. They would then open up the doors of the theatre and the clean air from outside would come in. So they'd have changed the air in the theatre. Now, of course, when I say clean air, I am talking about Victorian England. Right. So it's not, it's, it wouldn't be the wonderful fresh mountain, mountain air or anything like that. It would be in itself not the best air, but it was a change of air. And you very proudly advertise that in your programme and your publicity. And that's amazing. You can just picture the little boy in yes. maybe short pants. Yes, yes, Crawling yes. up there, getting that's all right. grubby. That's right. Small boys, yes, it's always small boys up chimneys, up into, up into roof spaces boys to do things. Boys got to climb. Yes. Kids got to climb. Absolutely, yes. And you mentioned one other thing, which I think I, I didn't know, and I've been in a lot of theatres, and yeah. that's, well, you, can you tell about it? You're the expert. Oh, well, I would have an expert. I just know, I a, few, know a few things. But as a, one of the acoustic aids in a theatre of this kind... Bearing in mind, it's in 1900, and you can just envision what it looks like with the stalls, the dress circle, the upper circle, and the gods, or proceeding march, is that near the stage you would always have soft materials. So the pillars of the proscenium arch, which look like marble, are not marble at all. They are, in fact, wood covered in this very cunning design of wallpaper that looks like marble. And all the decoration around there is just simply, it's quite hollow, it's just simply plaster of Paris on chicken wire. And you've knocked it, haven't you, and see that... I did, I knocked it, it's I quite the hollow. hole, I poked my finger in the hole a little... It's quite the, hollow, it's quite hollow. The chicken wire hollow. is there, no chickens, but chicken wire, <laughs> yes. it is there. It's all quite hollow. And so that um, all the decoration in the fronts of the, uh, fronts of the, bo- of the boxes and the fronts of the circles is quite, very soft, but you know, the plaster of Paris on chicken wire. And that's all an acoustic aid. It stops 
that hard little sound that you get sometimes in a stone or concrete building, that kind of sound you'll get. Right. It softens a sound and enables a sound to, be, to just move around the theatre and get beautiful, beautiful, non-echoey, perfect acoustics. Wow. Well, thank you for your amazing knowledge, and I love the cedar. It's, it's, it, it was restored. It, was, it burnt down practically. It, someone threw a toilet through the roof, basically, <laughs> right? Um, but it has been, it's in the process of being restored. It, it's a pillar of the community right now. Literally, there are pillars in it. So they are pillars of the community, and I just, I love it, and I'm really happy to be singing here. So. Yes, what you ought to know, too, about how the theater was built is that Frank Matcham, wonderful Frank Matcham, wasn't just a wonderful architect, he was a wonderful civil engineer. And he developed the system of cantilevering, which meant that you could build circles in theaters which were more than three rows deep which had no means, vis- phys- visible means of support. There are no pillars holding up the dress circle here. So they're it's not, a, you're right. There's a cantilevered system by which you have a huge, uh, there's, a, there's a, a counterweight on the opposite side over the foyer, which balances the weight Ooh. of the dress circle. And how, I, it must be a very, very heavy, well-secured weight. Yes, 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 yes. But it's a thing that he absolutely was a pioneer of, and it enabled theatres to get so much bigger, because up till then, most theatres were rather like, the, like when you imagine an Italian opera house, just very shallow rows of, of, of seats in the circles. But good old Frank Natchum, he did that. And of course, yeah, that was great, because it meant you, could, you, could charge, you, you got made more money. You got more, pe- more people in your theatre, you see. But our dress circle has no pillars holding it up. Well, well, that's often when I tell people that, they tend to look a bit apprehensive and move away. But uh. We're brave. Also, we're standing in the supported <laughs> part. Yeah, we're, we're, in, we're in a different part. Yes. yes. here on the podcast on an airplane you may remember I forget which it was two years ago uh, yeah probably two maybe two. three I was talking to a roller coaster club on the airplane I was flying to Prague but I don't remember this flight was to London I think was. or was it yeah flight to London and um could you tell the story how random this is? <laughs> well, this is really random because uh, I was one of the roller coaster club flying back from having spent two and a bit weeks charging around some of the theme parks in the USA. And this is Andy. Yeah, I'm Andy. Um, and uh, I spoke to Melanie on the plane and uh, we talked about how stupid it is to spend two and a half weeks running around America riding roller coasters. I, but I it- didn't say that. I think it's amazing. <laughs> But it's great fun, and it's what I do, and it's what I enjoy. Uh, so we had quite a chat on the aeroplane, and uh, then I was sitting at work one day, and somebody said, uh, here we go, uh, this is a show to go in the brochure, and uh, maybe I perhaps need to explain that I actually work in theatre. Uh, so I'm the marketing manager at a, at a nearly 700-seat, beautiful Victorian theatre in, in Portsmouth. Or it's called New Theatre Royal. It's called the New Theatre Royal. Uh, and uh, this very person who was doing this lovely little show about opera and mice... Um, turns out to be Melanie. And I thought, hmm, that lady seems to ring a bell. And uh, by some bizarre chance, I found my American money purse at home and there was Melanie's business card after the chat we'd had on the aeroplane. And now here she is stood next to my desk. It's brilliant. See, this is even more fun than joining the Mile High Club. Oh. Get that if you want. <laughs> if you have to get I can edit this. That's fine. So are you still a roller coaster lady? Oh, yes, okay. very, very much so. And a little bit jealous of the guys at the moment because there's, uh, there's 50-odd of them out in America at this very moment. Mm. And uh, I'm following it all on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and I'm very jealous because oh, they're sorry. going to some brilliant parks. So uh, they've just been to Silver Dollar City and Worlds of Fun uh, and some quite amazing parks that I've never been to, and I'm feeling particularly jealous. But never mind, I'm so here. So what's your favourite park? I know we talked about that, but I don't remember his answer. Ooh. I think you just sort of said all of them. Well, I yes, it does, it does change, really, depending on, on what you're looking at. I think probably my favourite park has got to be Cedar Point, only for the very number of coasters there are there. And it's Illinois? 
Cedar Point is oh ooh, well now it's got to think now. Um, Texas, not Ohio. No, no, no. Nothing's there. No. Sorry, um, everyone. Half the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots there, guys. Uh, oh, I can't remember. It's on Lake Michigan. Oh, Cedar Point. Probably. Detroit, Michigan, not Detroit. Yeah, it's on Lake Michigan somewhere, somewhere on there. Okay. Uh, and my other one is uh, Holiday World in Indiana. Wow. Uh, where they've got three amazing, amazing wooden coasters, which I really, really love. The wooden ones. I, yeah. I was in Brunei singing, and they have a wooden coaster. Yeah. I, was, I almost went on it, and then I, I did check it out. No, I do really, really love the wooden coasters, and we're really lucky because uh, there's uh, a park in England has literally just filed for some planning permission to build a brand new wooden roller coaster oh wow there's some lovely ones i mean america is absolutely amazing wooden coasters dollywood's got some really great ones and um you know I, i've traveled all over uh, kentucky and various other places that are some amazing wooden coasters and we've got quite a lot of lovely ones in in europe too um but we've just filed uh, one of the parks in england has just put in for planning permission to build a new one so we're rather That's excited fun. and what about um when you go to these parks, do you all go nacho eating? Is there a certain food you all eat? Anything you look forward to? <laughs> For me, it would be nachos. Like those awful ones with the cheese that make your face hurt. Well, mm, yeah, possibly. Uh, it tends to be an awful lot of pulled pork and an awful lot of chicken. Okay. Um, and uh, I've got to admit, when I came back last time, uh, I didn't want to eat chicken for weeks because all I'd done was eat pulled pork and chicken. Um, because quite often, because there's a large group of us, we have a group uh, that they'll do um, hospitality for us. So uh, they all think they're giving us the first chicken meal we've had in a week. And in actual fact, we've had it at every park we've been to. <laughs> so do the parks, the parks understand that you are a roller coaster group? Oh, yes. We get so much publicity following us around America. It's absolutely ludicrous. See, I followed you all the way here. Yeah, you did. I was in the bushes See? last night while you slept. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Yes, it's it's really the, the mad Brits that travel all around uh, America to, to ride roller coasters. We're, we're really and get free chicken. Lots of free chicken. <laughs> now, have you ever lost your chicken on a roller coaster? Uh, no, no, me never. No, I've been with a few people who have. And does, um, that, does their standing in the group go down? Most people who are like that are not members of the group. Fair um, enough. Yeah, most of us are pretty hardened riders. Those those of us in the in the roller coaster club is no not much point in being a member if you don't like it. You could like it, but it could just be that day, though. Yeah, possibly. I think we've all had a few hangovers on there from time to time, especially if we've been on the drink the night before. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, okay. Do you have any advice? I think we. I asked you this before. I'm asking you again for someone who wants to ride roller coasters. Who? Any advice for roller coaster riders? Any advice for roller coaster yeah, riders? So don't be on the drink too much the night before. No, probably not. Um, yeah, probably not day. too much chili. Not too much curry might not be too good either. Because if you people behind you. Or yeah. Okay. Yeah. Carrying drinks with you is a little bit dangerous as well. You do tend to get, put it in the face of the person sat behind you. Have you done this? We have. Okay. <laughs> We've done charity rides where we carry pint glasses full of water and all sorts of other very bizarre things. So, uh, is there a, your favourite outfit? Do you, is skirt, jeans? What, uh, no, always, always jeans and trainers. Okay. Uh, I always find it absolutely highly amusing in this country as well as abroad how many girls there are in parks in high heels and, and tiny skirts and you know how you can totter around the park like that. Well, I suppose perhaps because I just charge from one coaster to the I next. would. I too would be charging about yeah. from nachos to nachos yeah. and maybe, <laughs> maybe a ride. So, okay, that's good advice. That's good advice. Thank you. <laughs> so, good luck. What's your next trip? Do you know? Um, next trip, um, I've got one in a couple of weeks uh, just to a local park where I'm meeting up with some friends. I've got another one a couple of weeks after that. Uh, then I'm going to some of the travelling fairs over in Germany and Holland. Uh, and then a trip to Germany again a few weeks after that and then down into Austria. So, do you know the word for roller coaster in German? No. <gasps> oh, to, uh, well, no. I don't know, actually. I don't know. I There's something barn. Yeah, I guess it would be like train, yeah, right? There, there's some, some wonderful Poop touring coasters. <laughs> there's some wonderful touring <laughs> coasters in, in um, Germany. Um, Alpina Barn is one which is all based like on Alpine. the Alpine. Yeah, oh, all right. it, so is. it would be it something is. barn. So it's something barn, I think. And the last question is, people come to the UK, basically they go to London. They say, yeah. we've done England, we've done. Maybe they go to Buckingham Palace, which is in London. They go to the other palace, which is somewhere. Uh, maybe Stonehenge. Windsor, Windsor, yeah, Windsor Castle Windsor. is the other one. Stonehenge. Maybe Stonehenge they go to. Most <clears throat> yeah. people don't even know where it is. Um, no, they don't. But what would you, 
why should they come down here? Why should they come to Portsmouth? Yes. We're amazing, Portsmouth. We've got the most fantastic tower uh, with a viewing tower called the Spinnaker Tower, which you can see right the way across the whole of the Solent over to the Isle of Wight. There's so much sailing that happens in the water here. Um, there's three uh, amazing venues in Portsmouth. There's the Guildhall, which is a concert venue, and believe it or not, two Matcham theatres like this, which is amazing. There's us and the King's Theatre. So we're so, so gifted for the amount of arts and sports and I mean, it's just an amazing place and to be. And a beautiful pub next door. Yeah, a beautiful pub next door with its own real ale brewed on the premises. Really? Yep. And are there any roller coasters around here? Uh, yes, there's one down on the seafront, actually. And um, probably that was the very first one I ever rode. So it's your virgin coaster. Yep. So come ride her virgin coaster. Yeah, in Portsmouth. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. You like a roller coaster. All right, who am I with right now? My name's Maria Burns. I've been living in England for a lot of years. But the story is really about when we first came. Uh, Now, when we first came to England, it was in 1948. And we lived in a transit camp. It was a post-military camp with these sort of Nissan huts, barrel-y sort of metal things. And where was it? It was in outside of Morpeth, which is a little town uh, within within a, no twenty or so miles of Newcastle on Tyne. It's in Northumberland. It's a little Northumbrian town, but it was way out, even from the little town. It was in a field where they had put up Nissan huts for the Americans. Uh, so it was one up from the post-British military camps because the British had uh, very poor conditions, but the Americans had excellent conditions. They had showers. And, and, well, very primitive heating, but heating, which the Brits didn't have. So we sort of graduated from post-military camps that the British had left to uh, the ones that the Americans had left after they went home. Well, nobody, none of us could speak any English at all. And I was by then 11. And in England, of course, there's a test used to be now. Now it's not that, but it used to be called the 11 plus, uh, which if you wanted any education at all, you had to get into a grammar school. If you got into a grammar school, you were on your way. You passed exams, you got into university, you got a grant, just on your way. If you didn't pass the 11 plus, then nothing, really. It was just waiting till you were 14 and then you left school and did scabby jobs. That's what happened. Well, uh, they didn't know what to do with us because we couldn't speak any English. So they collected up the children into one of these little Nissan huts that served as a dining room uh, during the day. Uh, and they handed out these bits of paper. Well, I didn't know. I mean, the presumably said something, but it didn't mean anything. So I sat there and just turned them over. Pictures. Well, I subsequently learned that these are actually the Raven's Progressive Matrices, which are said to be the culture-free intelligence test. And they were trying to pick out people who could be taught. Well, clearly decided that I couldn't be taught because I made no marks at all on the bits of paper. Because you didn't speak English. Well, well, no, I mean, there would have been instructions, you see, which I didn't understand. But, I mean, it was fairly obvious. I mean, like, you know, you know if you know what it is, uh, then it's quite obvious what you should do. Uh, but they give us a pencil and then these bits of paper, and we're supposed to mark, the, you know, which, which pattern belongs with which pattern. That kind of thing. Well, I didn't know. So they sort of sucked the end of the pencil and then went home again. Anyway, I was obviously classified as mentally defective and was put into a school for mental defectives. Well, I was by then about 11. So I went to school every day, and when I came home, uh, my mother would say, well, what did you learn today? Well, we learned, we learned to cook stew. And other days we learned to scrub floors. Sometimes we learned to wash up. But the absolute tops was to, to wash a brush and comb because you had to count the number of drops of ammonia that you put into the water. Otherwise, if you put in too much, obviously, it would be a bad thing. So my mother was by now in despair, in absolute despair what to do. So we went to the priest. Well, his English was very, very poor indeed. 
But, of course, he had some Latin and he used that when he could. And he went to the education committee and they said, well, you know, we've got no facilities for people who don't speak English. Must go to school and learn to speak English. Well, that wasn't so easy because there was a bunch of us from the camp. Uh, and we all clung, to, clung together and played together. And then the English children would come and look at us and we would look at them. And, you know, there's no, not, no opportunity for conversation, learning nothing. So my mother was in real despair. Anyway, she eventually motivated the priest who went to the bishop, uh, who found me a free, because we had no money at all, we had nothing but refugees, you see. Anyway, uh, so the bishop found me a place in a convent school, and this was a, a boarding school for Catholic children. And my mother said to me, there you are, you go there, and you stay there until you can speak English. And I was the only girl there that didn't speak English. Everybody else spoke English. And that was how I acquired my, my, my mixture of Geordie, which the girls spoke Geordie, and, of course, the nuns spoke Irish, you see. So I spoke a mixture of Geordie and Irish. Uh, and I stayed there, oh, for maybe a couple of terms of the outside, and I learned. I mean, you couldn't help it. You know, you really couldn't help it. I learned on a quick time. Uh, and as soon as I could speak English... My mother and I went to the education committee in Newcastle on time. My mother not speaking a word, myself translating. So we sat in waiting rooms and got handed around, and in the end we got to this little man sitting behind a very large desk. And so I said to him, my mother says that I have to go to a proper school. Well, he said, well, where are you going now? Or St. Anne's, St. Anne's boarding school. Well, I said, that's a good school. It's not a good school. They teach nothing, my mother said. Tell the man they teach nothing. So I said, my mother says that they teach nothing. Well, how do you mean they teach nothing? What do they teach? Well, they teach the catechism and the lives of the saints and the history of the Roman church. Ah, well, you could see that, lives of the saints and all that. Anyway, my mother said, tell the man you have to do medicine. So my mother says, I have to study medicine. Oh, he said, oh, well. So they uh, let me into the second year uh, of the grammar school. Uh, and, of course, I mean, when you're in grammar school, it's just, just that easy. You know, all the way past the university and all the way past sort of decent middle-class living, home and dry. Uh, but that's how it happened. Man was very surprised. How do you mean they teach not together? They teach catechism, lives of the saints, and history of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, of course they do. Well, how did you get such perfect RP English then? Oh, in the grammar school. Ah. Oh, in the grammar school there was everything. Oh, I'll tell you, this was the other thing. It, well, of course, there aren't any grammar schools anymore. But when the grammar schools used to be there, it was a particularly fortunate time to be in a grammar school because during the First World War an awful lot of very young men were killed, thousands of them, literally thousands. Well, that left uh, and officers particularly, I mean whatever they tell you, that a lot of soldiers died, more officers died proportionately because they led from the front. Right. So, so all the young men died. Well, then that left a whole lot of middle class English women, young middle class English women who had nobody to marry because they'd all been died, you see. So they were all looking for work. And in those days, it was teaching, nursing, uh, and that was about it. Teaching, nursing, secretarial work. So all the really bright girls uh, did subjects in university, like, you know, sort of French or you know, art or mathematics or something like that. And then because they had a degree in a particular subject at university level. Uh, then they took a course in teaching and they taught in the grammar schools. And they were super, they were the brightest, loveliest, nicest. Because if you go to a school now, I mean, the teachers, well, I mean, Bernie did, did, uh, was a teacher for five years. And she said that uh, in the staff room, they talked about knitting Boyfriends and babies it drove her mad. Now, this, this is the cream of the intellectual uh, sort of people in the country. They're teaching these children that are going to grow up to be somebody. Now, what do they talk about? Television programs, babies, knitting. Drove her mad. In the end, she got out and got herself a PhD because she couldn't bear it. Uh, but the level of staff room conversation was just zero. But, of course, in my day, you see, te teachers were intellectual. I mean, there were people were the first in maths and people were the first in physics and things like that. Oh, it was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. The best time of my life. <laughs> 
next group of interviews are from Haven't in the United Kingdom. I ran a knitting workshop. Yes, me. I ran a knitting workshop in Haven't and we started chatting about knitting and we started podcasting and this this is some of our chat about knitting from my knitting group in Haven't, UK. Right, little bird? group of knitters here in Havent, and everyone's knitting, right? We are. And there's one knitter here who knits something very special. Could you tell about it? You don't have to stop knitting. I would never ask that, ever. So what is it? I mean, what are you knitting now? This is a balaclava for the mission to seamen, which we do as our Christian mission that these poor chaps, they come in, they're very cold, and so the mission to seamen, who have chaplains at the ports, give them a hat or a balaclava or a pair of gloves, whatever they need. And it looks like the old design, the one that people did during the war. The original war design, yes it is. Because I've I've knit them and that is the original design. Except that they like colour, they don't have to wear a uniform, and they like colour. Yes, and the chaps that wear... Safety helmets have to have a balaclava because they couldn't wear a hat because of the brim. And the other chaps that don't have to wear a safety helmet, then they can just wear a hat like those are. I think it's really interesting. No, no one has changed the pattern. You know, yeah. it is the same pattern. Pattern, yes. They, the yes. apostleship of the sea headquarters wants us to do that pattern. Yes. There's several different missions and they all sort of combine and we just do it for all of them, really. We've been doing this 10 years, my sister and I. So do you and your sister fight over yarn? No, no we share no. it. Really? Mm-hmm. So, you knit something really special. Aside from these, something some people knit bigger things and you knit smaller things. Yes, I like minis for doll's houses. Twelfth scale, you know. Most people I know who knit minis knit them on zero-zero needles, but you have found a better way to do it. Yes. You see, the, the needle gauge goes as per the size of wire in this country the smallest needle many years ago that you could get in the doll's house exhibitions was a size 16 the smallest you can buy in a wool shop is a size 14 Um, and then uh, through my professional work uh, I was in the right place at the right time you could say um, when I was asked actually to dispose of some 21 gauge Injection needles. So you knit on injection needles? I do indeed. But the long ones. I was in pharmacy at one time at the Hospital for Sick Children at Great Ormond Street and we used to make an awful lot of our things because all the consultants wanted things that were made in-house. They didn't like the uh, proprietary things that were bought. And I happened to be in our staff room one day when my boss came in and said, Oh, Mary... Would you dispose of these needles for me? They're from the old ample filling machine and I found them in my office cupboard. And I looked at them. This was 21 gauge lure fitting injection needles for filling amples, but about this long. And I said, oh, can I have these? And you can imagine his face was a picture. He didn't. He was such a gentleman. He didn't like to say to me, what do you want them for? But I said to him, well, actually, I'm very interested in miniatures and I would love to do some knitting on them. That's all right, he said, you can have them. So I had two pairs of size 21 gauge needles, hence the miniatures. And is it dangerous for you? Do you get poked? Oh, I do get I do get a bit of a sore finger if I do too much, yes, because the advantage, though, is that because the end of the injection needle is slanting, you can use that to your advantage, because if you have to slant towards you when you're doing a pearl stitch and away from you when you're doing a plain stitch. It works beautifully. That's true. That's true. So you've entered... Okay, also, could you tell the story up first about the cushion and then about entering the miniatures? <laughs> They're good. Dare I say W-I-E-D? No, you could just say contest. Competition. Yes, it was at the village in um, Billingshurst. A very nice dear friend of mine asked me to put things in. They were having a village um, display, etc. So they give prizes? One schedule, 
was a traditional nine-patch cushion. Uh, it didn't state the size. So they're usually how big? Um, about a foot, foot about and a half? 12 inch, 18 inch cushion perhaps, something like that. But mine, of course, was a little miniature one. When I handed it in, the lady said, what is this? <laughs> and I said, a traditional nine-patch cushion. You don't state a size on your schedule, and therefore, it's, it's bona fide. Same with the little knitted jumper on the she doll's house. She knitted a house. jumper with cables. Yes. Yes. For a little doll's house dressmaker's model. Put that in. The schedule was a hand-knitted garment. Didn't say what size. So I put it in. They said, what's this? I said, a hand-knitted garment. And then, bless your soul, the person that judged it put, this is not as per schedule, this is not hand-knitted. She couldn't see. Wow. <laughs> it amused me, actually. <laughs> so you knit big, you knit small, you knit this gorgeous, it's double-knitted. It's double knitted. Oh, no, it isn't. No, no, it's, it's um, Shetland wool. Fine. It's beautiful. And this is a colour work. Yeah. And it's gorgeous. And you are an amazing knitter with well, things to teach us all. Well, I don't know. I just like to. Well, it amuses me. With the hats. When we were asked to put on a little display, my sister and I, at a service that they had, and one of the ladies from headquarters was going around taking photographs. And we got chatting, and she said, yes, she'd got cats. And I said, well, when the cat's on my lap, I have to do hats, because they're not as long. When it gets like this, it's too long, and it makes him twitch. And she said, oh, I see, it's cats for hats, is it? I said, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and your sister knit during the war, right? I was at school at the end during the war, but my aunt was knitting during the war, and she knitted for all the services. And she did navy blue for the navy, khaki for the army and the grey for the air force the grey air force blue mm -hmm. and she knitted balaclavas she knitted gloves mm -hmm. on four needles and she knitted socks on four needles mm -hmm. she was the housekeeper of quite a big house in Southsea when the lady of the house had her siesta during the afternoon, and that was every afternoon, my aunt used to do her knitting. She also did wonderful knitting of um, coats, little pram coats, fancy stitches. When my sister was born, when she was a baby, she had all these lovely little coats that her aunt had knitted her. But my mother taught both of us mm. to knit, but my aunt was the one that taught me to do the fancy stitches and all the fancy work, read the patterns and all that sort of thing. And sadly, she had to give up her knitting when she lost her eyesight. Oh. But she did knitted pounds and pounds of wool during the war for the forces. So it wasn't only the men working during the war, it was the women at home mm. as well. Mm. Mm. Yes, they were. And even though your mum taught you to knit, you both knit differently. Yes. Well, that is because I think I had a skin problem at the time. And so I couldn't bend my fingers. Every time I'd bend my fingers, they'd bleed. Even my piano teacher was ever so kind to me because if they bled, he didn't uh, make an issue of it. But, you see, Mary didn't have that problem, so I think I compensated, and that is the reason why I take my hand off and I don't bend the fingers. Mm. They're not um, bad now, but I've got into that habit. Yeah. Of, that's mm. how that's I knit. Mm. Although taught by the same mother, mm. we knit differently. But you still get a good result, so... Mm. It works. It works. Yes. It works. And how about you? Do you have any knitting stories? I'm really just very rusty and not very good. So my story is I've come to learn from all these ladies who are rather more expert. Well, listen, you're making a dish class. Well, I've got stuck. I was going to ask you what I've done oh, here. Shoot. <laughs> okay, hold on. Well, this is it. No, it's nice to listen. Yeah. How about you? You are a knitter. I'm a knitter. And you're part of a knitting group here? Yeah, and various other places as well. And... Uh, I just, it's very therapeutic, and because my mother learnt to knit without looking at what she was doing, I learnt to knit without looking at what I was doing. So it means you could watch television and read a book. And, and what do you like knitting? knitting? Um, 
all sorts. Um, occasionally I get bored with things that you can do without looking and I want, I want to do something that's got challenge shape. I'm not very good at following... Not very good at following patterns, so I tend to work to work on a shape. So I'll start with a little semicircle, and that'll become the middle of the back, and that'll grow from there. Oh, lovely. And what's the be- what's the most interesting thing you've knit? Um, this dishcloth, right? <laughs> this dishcloth. It's so, so totally absorbing because the company's good. I'd like you to tell everyone about Mabel. Oh yeah, well, please. yes, yeah. It, it's it's just that because I spin yarn as well as knitting with it. Um, um, I, I do much prefer to spin an alpaca or a sheep oh. whose name I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you were telling about when yeah, you finished well, something. That, that, that's right. So yeah, Whereas when I'm spinning, proper spinners know the breed and the count and all sorts of techniques. Yes, I've, I've, Baron, Baron came from there. He's a lovely grey alpaca. And we met at a show and we spent some time gazing into each other's eyes and telling each other we were gorgeous. So I went up to Adstein, got some of Baron's fleece, and um, that made a lovely one. That's the one that I started with um, half... Well, sort of semi-sorry, as more half an octagon oh. as the nape of the neck. And I just kept the shape going, increased the knitting so that it went out in regular radiating lines. And I've got the shape of a waistcoat cut out of cardboard so I lie, lie flat on the floor wow. and put my knitting on that and say, ah, oh, right, stop increasing that end, start decreasing that end and, and uh, stop when you get to the bottom and then keep filling in the gap. Yeah. So it ends up with sort of one piece. The only seam is on the shoulders. Wow. And um, that, that was from Baron. And do you spin the alpaca, do you? Oh, yeah, spun up, spun wow. Baron, yes. And drop spindle and regular, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, drop spindles doesn't get... If, it depends what you're doing it for. I, I like just sitting at the wheel and spinning yarn, rather like a, a sit and knit. Um, it, but uh, the drop spindle's quite fun, places where you can't take a wheel. That's true. Um, People I'm, wonder, what is that person doing with that That's right. scary-looking thing, yeah, drop yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, it's, it's pretty nice. I love working with children as well, you know, sort of talking to them. And Kids love finger knitting. Yeah. I, I find that they love great. finger knitting. Yeah. Finger knitting is good for that. They don't seem to mind that all you get is a chain. They don't just... even know what that is. Oh, I'll show you in a second. It's, <laughs> it's kids love finger knitting. How about you? Are you a knitter? Um, I was a knitter a long, long time ago in my earlier days, but I'm just revisiting it for a while. Well, look, you could join a knit and natter group and you can natter hmm? as much as you want. Thursday mornings. Yeah. Right, well, I live in Woke Club. Well, when you're on hailing, you're welcome. That's an idea. I think there are knitted natter groups in every city. Are you a knitter? I used to knit when I was at school. Mm -hmm. I knitted something for myself for my 18th birthday, Mm -hmm. and my friend Jeanette, who was at school with me, put the crochet on the edge for me. Nice. Um, what did so you I, knit? That was a cardigan, so I still have that, although I don't think it fits me anymore. But, uh, but I Your small knitting stretches? I haven't knitted, I should think, for probably 40 years, so wow. it's really and interesting to see that. I picked it up this morning, and I, I'm, once I got over the casting on problem, I'm actually all right knitting. Yeah. <laughs> I can do no, the basic. No. So Kathleen and Mary. Mary Tamell. And you were telling me about knitting. People still are knitting for sailors. So Yes, we are knitting for sailors because in Portsmouth, the ships come in. They bring all our bananas in through Portsmouth. The ships come in on the Sunday. They are in uh, port all day Monday and they go out Tuesday. We have an association of the missions to seafarers 
which is the Church of England mission. We have the Apostleship of the Sea, which is the Roman Catholic mission. And they both have the same hot, hut and offices down at Portsmouth Port. They have computers there. They have hats and garments to give the seamen. And they, if they need dental treatment, they're taken up to the uh, university dentistry department. These men come in and they are cold. It is our Christian mission. The ship visitors offer them a hat, a balaclava or gloves or a scarf because these men are cold. They are very, very grateful. We take no money for it. All the wool is donated. Um, members of the Mother's Union collect it and give it to me. Uh, some people are from Mary's, they collect up. Who do you collect up from, Mary, then? Oh, gosh, I collect up from uh, a lot of older ladies that I happen to know, and I sometimes unpick garments that are no longer wanted and reuse the wool. The common phrase, I suppose, is recycle, but it's to a very good purpose. And I also get given quite a lot of wool of all applies, um, which we can use because we have a pattern for chunky hats. We have a pattern for Aran. We also have four ply. Um, if we get three plies, we can put two together and make a variegated shade. So nothing is wasted. And these, these sailors are not British, so they come from no, no, nearly abroad, Philippines or anywhere out that way. Yes. And you said they were at sea sometimes ten months. Yes. Ten months without seeing their families. The ship visitors make sure that they at least make a phone call home while they were here at Portsmouth or to send an email because there are computers down in the offices. I think that's really good work. And people it don't is. Know. It's a Christian mission. Mm -hmm. We are doing a Christian mission. There's, uh, there's no money taken for any of it. Some of these seamen, we have been told, offer the ship visitors money. They go in their pockets. How much do you want me to give you? And we, the ship visitor explains to them, no, we're giving you that because that's our Christian mission to you. And sometimes they are quite upset because they can't accept that they're being given it. Are you sure, they say to the ship visitor? And it really is remarkable how they accept it and then go off with their hats and gloves and whatever and they've been given. It must be so nice. Also, it's, it's a kind word, you know, after being at sea and being yes. ordered about mm. for mm. ten months mm. Mm. to actually come and have someone treat them like their home. That's right. Mm. Yeah, it's the friendship. In ten years, I've done over 500 garments. Wow. <laughs> and they're all over the world. That's wonderful. <laughs> As a mountain bird, his energetic fist should be ready to resist a I can remember at the age of five, 1945, celebrating victory in Europe and waving my Union Jack. And there's this boy with ginger hair and freckles, and his name was Colin Hill. And he took a fancy to me, because I had long plaits with little bows of ribbon on. And he used to go, ding, dong, ding, dong. But one, once I, start, I sang, a crowd of children, as clear as anything, and we sang, we'll wave the flag, the bonnie flag of the red and white and blue. And as soon as I ceased from waving my Union Jack, this boy, Colin Hill, chased me round the toilet, and he kissed me. And I remember wiping it off, and I went home to tell my mum. I said, Mum, that Colin Hill kissed me round the toilet. Never mind, dear, she said. Don't let him kiss you when you're 18. That was the age of five, and I'm not on any medication whatsoever. Despite all the knitting of all the years, I do not have a problem with carpal tunnel. And... and attending today at this lovely knitting and song... I'm sorry, I don't know who the singer was, but she'll... I heard she's very nice. But she's very nice, and I love opera, and really I found it most enlightening 
that all the songs of the First World War and others were just around. It was victory in Europe when we, if I use the expression, we beat the Germans and we wave in the flag. And I, and I was taught to knit. And it was with a big wo- pair of wooden needles and string. And it was my first garment. And my mother used it because I was one of eight children. And it? she used it as a, as a washing up cloth. And that's my story. And so when they announced the war was over, you had a Union Jack. Yes, waving my Union Jack, and I'll repeat the song, and we all had to sing, all these little children from the Midlands sang. We'll wave the flag, the bonnie flag, of the red and white and blue. And I had my first kiss. Praise the Lord, and pass the ammunition. Praise the Lord, and pass the ammunition. Praise the Lord, and pass the ammunition, and we'll all stay free. It's neat and it's sweet, it's a ding dong treat. Let's talk to our little feet. with your knitting all day long. It's friendly and it's fun. Kittens get for everyone, and that is why we sing this kitten song. With kitten one pearl two, what's a doozer gonna do with a gall? Darn, ball, yarn, and stitch three, drop four, pitch that kitten out the door right now. So this episode has run a lot longer than I thought it would. By the time I edited everything up, it ended up being almost two hours. So I'm dividing it up because I'm exhausted and I want to get it out right away, or at least part of it out right away. So I'm dividing it up, part one, part two. This is the end of part one. I am so jet-lagged. Part two is more travel. Uh, It's me having adventures overseas. If you want to reach me, I'm here, here, I'm here, sleeping, I hope, soon. But you can email me, melanie at SavvyGirls.ca, also SavvyGirlsPCast on Twitter, SavvyGirlsPodcast on Ravelry, and Facebook. And if you live in Regina or Winnipeg or Edinburgh or Vancouver, let me know. I'm coming. I'm coming. Going to all of those places. Anyway, take care, and in the meantime, tend to your knitting, kitten.